0: Well, believe it or not, we're now in the ninth episode, nine, of our sermon series entitled The Story. Um, Here's a look at where we've been. We started about uh, uh, a couple months ago thinking about the significance of story, the reality of God, and we've plowed all the way through to God's initial act as a surgeon, that is in the story of Abraham, which we dealt with a couple weeks ago. And today we look at the, the incident of Ishmael. And here's a look at the topics to come. But as you know, if you're uh, from around these parts, we've started each one of these sermons because we're thinking about the grand human epic by doing an interview with ten questions of a student, a church member, someone who lives locally, or a visitor uh, from some great distance. But we've done an interview because in learning a little bit more about a particular human being's story, we discover more about our own collective story as humans. And so I want to invite, yes, another student. This is a good day, Kimberly Wright, who's going to come forward. She is a junior nursing student, and uh, I'm going to put her to the test with these questions. Good morning. Hi. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, I'm ready.
0: What sound or noise do you love?
1: Um, I love the noise. It really is noise. When my whole family gets together and my older sister comes home and we are all just talking in the kitchen and telling stories, and that's my favorite.
0: Family noise. Yeah. What sound or noise do you hate?
1: Um, Well, Sunday mornings. It's the proverbial crack of dawn, and I hear the sound of my dad's voice at my door waking me up way too early. It's terrible.
0: Mm. (laughs) Do you, um, do you need your pastor to get involved in this problem? I,
1: I think we can, okay. we can handle it. Okay. Because
0: we can deal with that. That's, that's not right, I don't <laughs> think. When friends visit from out of town, where do you take them to eat and why?
1: Um, I would just take them to Worm Ranch because it's really good food, and also it's a weird name, and they're like, why is it called Worm Ranch?
0: <laughs> Indeed. If you inherited a large sum of money, what would be your first investment or purchase?
1: I would buy a big sailboat, and I would have it rigged for open water, and I would go to the Bahamas.
0: What quality do you appreciate most in people?
1: I appreciate the quality of honesty and openness.
0: If you were a person in Scripture, who would you be?
1: Well, I think I might be like Martha. She's always busy doing stuff, and I usually get pretty involved with the details of events, and I just like to be busy all the time.
0: Who is your least favorite person in Scripture other than the devil?
1: Uh, well, right now, I in our family worship, we're, we're reading about King Saul and David and how King Saul is just he admits that David is, you know, God's chosen, but then he tries to kill him, so I don't really like King Saul right now.
0: You probably never will. No. <laughs> a, I, I can't get over it either. Um, what energizes you?
1: I really like uh, when it's Friday afternoon and I have no homework on the docket for the evening and my room is clean. It just, there's so many possibilities. It feels so good. <laughs>
0: What makes you cry?
1: Um, I really don't like seeing people in situations that they didn't ask for or they didn't deserve. And that makes me angry almost, which makes me cry.
0: What do you hope to hear God say to you when you arrive in heaven, Kimberly?
1: I want him to say, you know, welcome home. And I want him to say, come meet the rest of your family.
0: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Let's give her a hand. So, have you ever woke up in a fighting mood? You just woke up grumpy, on the edge. You know you've got a very short fuse with your children, spouse, people you bump into at work or in the classroom, somebody along the road, you know it is not going to take much, because of the mood you're in, to just flip out. You are in a fighting mood. I think we are in a fighting mood in our society. I mean, it doesn't take much. I could mention a few terms produce an open microphone, and we could get going. It wouldn't take much. Global warming, immigration policy, the legalization of marijuana, gay marriage, tax policy, socialized medicine, right-to-life issues. It wouldn't take much to get us going. Mention a few names, be it George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Ted Cruz. Yeah, I suspect we're in a fighting mood. It doesn't take much to get us going in this society. Why? I don't know. Is it the, the news media constantly raising every single issue to the level of a hill to die on? Or could it be that we're feeling such financial insecurity or insecurity of a deeper kind that causes us to be so raw in our nerves? We're in a fighting mood. And now I'm talking about the church. The Christian church, it seems to me, has a very short fuse these days. We're ready to come to it, to fight each other. And Adventist Christianity is not immune. Oh, no, we've adopted some of the fighting issues going on in the rest of Christianity. Let's have a conversation about the role of women in ministry. Man, we are immediately ready to demonize, not just to disagree with, but to call the opposite side sons and daughters of the devil. Or how about a conversation about science and religion? There's one for you. It wouldn't take long to get a lot of people worked up. In the church, we fight so quickly about what is appropriate not in worship. What should we read or not read? Who should we associate with? And who should we stay away from? It doesn't take much. Why? Is it because religious media of a kind fires us up so easily? Or is there something deeper in our souls? Why are we in a fighting mood in society and in the church? Well, here we are. Enter Christmas. Churches put banners up front that say, Pax, peace. Peace on earth. This is the message of our story. Jesus becomes peace on earth. And we are to be peacemakers ourselves. What do we do then with this great story of Christmas, peace on earth, that we claim to hold on to with our lives, amid a world, a society, even a church that is so apt to fight. I'd like to take us back to an ancient story. It's the story of a family that gets in a huge fight with consequences that go on for generations, even to today. And then, after telling this story, some reflections. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah, also called Abram and Sarai, are an elderly couple, infertile. They want to have a child, and then God breaks in. You will have a son. It will be a miracle. They're all fired up. They are excited. but. As the story goes, 10 years go by, a decade, nothing. Sarah's had enough. She goes to her husband Abraham and says, we've got to find a different way. I want you to go sleep with my slave Hagar, impregnate her, and that will be the child that we've looked for. And Abraham complies. Hagar becomes pregnant. And she begins to despise her Master, despises Sarah. Sarah can't take it. She goes to her husband Abraham. We pick up the story in Genesis 17. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means for the Lord has heard of your misery. Hagar goes back. What must of that been like? The condition of that broken household? 14 more years go by, miracle of miracles, Sarah becomes pregnant. Gives birth to Isaac. And we learn that Ishmael begins to taunt Isaac, all is not well. Sarah goes to her husband, gets a permission, sends the slave and this son of a slave on their way into the desert with a little bit of food and water to survive for a time. There in the desert, and we learn this, Genesis chapter 21, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then Hagar went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob God heard. This family conflict is famous with consequences that we even see today. People groups that claim one or the other of these two boys at war. So what do we learn from this story about our fighting mood and conflict and how instead we might live for peace? Observation number one, God hears the cries of those who oppose you. God hears the sobs of the very person who opposes me. You see, Catholics, God also hears the cries of Protestants. You see, Christians, God also hears the tears of those who are not Christians. You see, theists, God also hears the quiet sobs of those who cannot bring themselves to even believe in God. Liberals, God hears the tears of the conservatives. Conservatives, God hears the sobs of the liberals. You see, the challenge is we are monotheists. That means... That all people can only, by definition, as they are crying out for the divine, they can only speak to one God. Yes, there are gross misrepresentations of God. There are entire cultures, I would say, that have it wrong in terms of who God really is. But those cries, God hears. God hears the tears of the person who opposes me who opposes you. And what does that do to my fighting mood and yours if my Father in heaven is also that person's Father in heaven? But it's more than that. A second observation from this story, God wants to turn your opponent into a great nation. In fact, later in Genesis, we read that Ishmael has twelve sons, ring a bell, that turn into twelve tribes, a great nation. God simply goes beyond mere listening to our cries as human beings. He has a plan for every person's life that extends beyond the lifespan. The children of Israel are getting a little bit uppity, thinking that they're the only game in town. God speaks through the prophet Amos just a single verse. Listen to it. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptor, and the Arminians from Kerr? There was more than one salvation, God says. It's not just about you. I'm working everywhere. Jesus says, I have sheep of other folds. He reaches out to Gentiles, to Romans and Samaritans, to tax collectors and sinners. And even in our Christmas story that we celebrate through word and music this season, we find men from eastern lands who bring gifts that provide provisions for Jesus and his family. Even in our Christmas story, we find Joseph commanded by an angel to take the family, for protection to the West, to Egypt, for safety. Interesting, in our story, it is not Jerusalem nor Judea that provide shelter for the Christ, but rather it is from the East, it is from the West. This story says to us God has plans for all humanity. God hears my enemy. God wants to do great things even through the person that I don't like. If I embrace these two realities alone from this story, I have to tell you, it moves me, and I think it would move you from a fighting mood, maybe closer to the land of peace. Third observation. The powerful have a greater responsibility to work for peace. The powerful, a greater responsibility to work for the peace. I mean, in this story that we're reading this morning, all of the power is in the hands of Abraham and Sarah. All of it. At the very beginning, it is with their power that they command this slave, you will sleep with Abraham. You will do what we say. They have all the power. Then after Hagar becomes pregnant, They have all the power about how they're going to deal with this situation, even the conflict that arises. They then have the power once Isaac is born as well to figure out how to deal with the brokenness that has come in the household of their own accord. They have all the power at every turn, and yet they do nothing but bring further division. They do not bring peace. In conflict, each of us must consider the power that we bring to the situation. Parents, conflict between a parent and a young child, it is the parent who has the greater power and has the responsibility to bring peace. In the workplace, it is not the employee, but the boss that is required to bring peace to the situation. In our families, in our workplaces, in our political culture, it is the dominant race in a particular land that has the responsibility to bring peace to racial tensions. And in the church, friends, it is the responsibility of elders and pastors and church administrators to be leaders of peace. Peace. Yes, there are moments when religious leaders must clearly draw lines in the sand and attempt to move people in a particular direction, but the default mode, most of the time, spiritual leaders must be women and men of peace. In fact, a divisive leader is an oxymoron in a church context. Leaders must be peacemakers by definition. If you've got the power, and every one of us has a degree, to pa- a degree of power in our lives, we must use that power not to bring further division like Abraham and Sarah, but rather seek the peace. They could have shared in that inheritance instead of proclaiming that slave boy will have nothing of the inheritance. They could have made a different choice. God hears the cries of the person who opposes you, God wants to do great things through their life, even build nations. And God wants you to use whatever power you've been given to work for peace. A fourth observation from our story, heated passion absent cool wisdom kills the prospect of peace. Let me read that again. Heated passion absent cool wisdom kills the prospect of peace. Sarah and Abraham are fired up about their particular cause. We can be hot for a particular issue, even a spiritual one, but this does not mean we are heated up about the right issue or in the right way. Now, I'd like to read to you something that a man by the name of A.W. Tozer wrote about 60 years ago, middle of the 20th century, And he's making this important observation that we need to consider not only being hot for God, but also that we must be wise, that we must have a cool head. i want to read to you three brief uh, paragraphs, Uh, lean in and listen to his good wisdom. He, He says, Among the gifts of the Spirit, scarcely anyone is of greater practical usefulness than the gift of discernment. This gift would be highly valued and frankly saw it as being almost indispensable in these critical times. This gift will enable us to distinguish the chafe from the wheat and to divide the manifestations of the flesh from the operations of the Spirit. For want of this gift, many of God's good people continue to chase fireflies in the mistaken belief that they are following the fire in the cloud. And this they do to the great harm of their own souls and to the confusion of others. Tozer writes, "...there will always be those who hesitate to believe anything is of God unless it has some flavor of the weird or at least of the supernatural." Persons with a certain type of mentality think only in extremes. They can never achieve perspective in anything, but see everything so close as to miss entirely the corrective benefits of distance. They will believe anything as long as unusual or a little mysterious. Their fire is not large, but by holding it always at one fine point, they manage to generate a surprising amount of heat only at that one point. These are the days of great religious turmoil, Tozer says. We do well to remember that God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Let love burn on with increasing further, but bring every act to the test of quiet wisdom. Keep the fire in the furnace where it belongs. An overheated chimney will create more excitement than a well-controlled furnace, but it is likely to burn the house down. Let the rule be a hot furnace, but a cool chimney. I'm fiery by personality. I can get excited about a lot of things. But this man, and I suspect many of you, need to also remember wisdom, passion, but discretion. I wonder how much peace would be brought if we applied that rule. I think this is why it is so essential for us on a regular basis to consider Jesus and His teachings, for it ensures that we will focus actually on the things that He cares about and care deeply about those things in the right way. Peace. God hears the cries of your enemy. God has great plans for them. God says, use your power to bring the peace. God says, be wise in how you are fired up about something. Final observation from our story. Supernatural grace is the mother of human peace. I'll confess I ripped this straight from the Apostle Paul. His magisterial letter to the Galatian church all about living in grace and how that produces the fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace. Paul uses the story of Sarah and Hagar to make his point. Metaphorically, he says, we have a choice. Here it goes. We can either live as children of a slave woman We can live as people in bondage if we want to live that way, or we can live as a child of a free woman. Paul says you can live as a woman enslaved, as a child of a woman enslaved. Go ahead and do that. Be full of moralism and legalism, constantly worried about your behavior and everybody else's, and you will discover the works of the flesh. Or be a child of grace and your life will be filled up with spiritual fruit, including peace. It's interesting, the relationship between these two. Did you know if you set aside the four Gospels and the book of Acts, sort of the histories in the New Testament, and just go from Romans to Revelation? In 17 of those 22 books, this phrase, grace and peace. Grace and peace. Paul does it, John does it, Peter does it. Grace and peace. There's something about living in supernatural grace that causes in our spirit to be peaceful. Don't forget, God hears the cries of your opponent, wants to do great things. Don't forget that you have power. Don't uh, forget to act in wisdom and live in grace. These five observations, I believe, are good and true. I want to finish with a Christmas story. And you know, we tell the same Christmas stories every year. Uh, It's part of the tradition, isn't it? It's a good thing. I've told you this story before, and I will tell it to you again, but now as well. In the Christmas of 2009, the first Christmas for the Bryans in Walla Walla, I was carefully setting up the nativity scene in the living room. Each figurine, Mary, Joseph, the angels, shepherds, wise men, putting it all together perfectly, very precise in my work. When Audrey, who was three years old at the time, comes barreling in and looks at my work and says, "Daddy." Where's Herod? I said, well, he's not in the Christmas story. <laughs> yes, he's in the Christmas story. Where? Why is Herod, Daddy, not in the nativity scene? I said, Why? Well, he's not in the nativity scene. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't want to be in the nativity scene. But Herod's part of the Christmas story, she said. She's unsatisfied, stomps out of the room. I continue my careful word. A couple minutes later, she returns with a doll in her hand. Daddy, look, it's Herod. It's Herod. He's ready to play nicely now. (laughs) And in the year of our Lord, 2009, in Walla Walla, Washington, in the home of the Bryants, Herod, part of the story. Even A three year old longs for peace. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the cosmos. Not for God so loved the Christians, or for God so loved the Americans, or for God so loved the liberals. Or, for God so loved the conservatives, for God so loved the world, that He gave this child of peace. May we marinate in this truth, and in the new year, may we find resolve as a church to live as a people of peace.